Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. That's a big hit. That's going all the way. Robert Sandals comes to the pick. That's on the roof. Well, the boys did it. The one this third test against India was a bit of a surprise, but Australia finally won a game. Uh, Callum and Rory here with you as ever. Callum, how are you doing this week? Feeling a bit better after a win? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely um, definitely softened the blow of a couple of busy weeks, I suppose, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and softened the blow of the first two losses, obviously. Um, so, yeah, no, nah, in, in, in better spirits this week we are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely an interesting game. We'll get onto it in a second. Uh, make sure you review the podcast, give it a rating and subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the button down the bottom there. Uh, just some news to start off with. Harry Brook has gone to the US. Uh, England have about 900 different games on at a time, but he's off uh, to Florida to join up for the baseball spring training, which is, I guess, a different way to uh, train. But the way he hits the ball, he, he could probably make a few of those major league teams. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's if that's something he wants. I don't know if he's maybe had a look at some of the baseball player salaries and gone, oh, I might have a go at that. <laughs> nah, I guess um he just wants to remain sharp in terms of his striking and that sort of thing. He wants to keep up the the momentum of what he's been doing in terms of um his international cricket of late. And um, I suppose you know some of those skills do transfer. Being able to hit the short ball and being able to hit you know what. Uh, high pitch fastball is mm-hmm. kind of a similar sort of technique. It's a different kind of bat, but, um, you know, I, I could see how those skills translate and um, it's definitely a great opportunity for him. Yeah. We talk about big money in the IPL, but it's it's nothing compared to a baseball salary. Some of those contracts, you're looking at like 400 million across 10 years. It's pretty big money. Um, who do you reckon would, would move across easy? Do you reckon a baseballer would make it easier in cricket or a cricketer in baseball? I think a cricketer and baseball, just because cricketers are more acclimated to hitting low balls, whereas in baseball, a lot of the best hitters still kind of just look for it in like the sweet spot, you know, that kind of just below the hip area kind of kind of kind of um situation. So um, I think they'd have a harder time just in cricket because there are so many deliveries that stay low. And they can just as easily get you out, whereas you know you have to hit a particular strike zone in baseball to get to get out. Yeah. Um, that's just my logic behind it. I'm sure baseball fans will disagree with me, and if you have a compelling argument, I'm I'm willing to listen to it. <laughs> but that's just kind of my perspective from my understanding of both games. Yeah, I think that's pretty well correct. I think the fact that the ball bounces in cricket makes it a completely different sport. You know, you're watching a, a very different area. Uh, when the ball comes out compared to with baseball. Uh, we'll never really know. I don't think anyone's ever going to make that switch. It'd be a, a big risk both ways. No one's going to come from baseball to cricket anyway. The money's just not there. Um, let's go to the, the test match, though. Australia beat India in the third test. Um, look, good to get a win, but it was a shit show of a game, wasn't it? Uh, India bowled out essentially in the first session. Uh, Australia do a little bit better across, well, two and a bit days, and, and they get the win. Once again, like... The, the pitches in India are not test cricket standard. They're not doing themselves any service with pitches like that. They're probably the best team in the world across all conditions, right? They've been Australia in Australia. They've, uh, they almost beat England in England, all those things. And yet they give themselves little or no chance of showing how dominant they can be 
in their own country by preparing pitches that just are substandard. Yeah, yeah. I um <clears throat> that first innings in particular, I felt a bit um inflicted. I felt vindicated in the sense that I identified what success would be for Australian in the third test and they went and got it in the first innings. And I was like, yes, that's good. But then, you know, the more I looked at it and the more I was thinking about it, I was like, look, if India producing this on this pitch, what can Australia do? Exactly. Yeah, you shouldn't be worried that both teams in India bowled out uh, on the first day, essentially. Like, that's not – it's not good for the game. It's not good for people that bought day four tickets that didn't get to get to use them. People that bought day three tickets and then they got to see an hour of cricket. Like, that's – it's really not good enough. The, the pitches, uh, yeah, just haven't been – up to standard cricket should be lasting test cricket should be lasting four or five days that's why uh the game lasts five days it's i know it's like a guide that's how long it can last at maximum uh but ideally you should be lasting at least at least four days and being bowled out for 100 having what was there one half century in the whole match that's Mm. not good enough you know india's got what four or five of the best batters in the world in that lineup virat Kohli, rohit sharma uh, Pajara, he's the one that actually hits some runs. Even Shubman Gill is obviously one that's up and coming. Their averages have all plummeted over the last few years with India going with these extra spinning pitches. And the worst part is they don't even need them, right? Like have Ashwin and Jadeja, who are the best spin bowlers in the world. Even if they just had a little bit of help, uh, they'd be they'd be fine. You know, Indian pitches, we went through it last week. We went through some of the numbers, right? They've changed dramatically uh, in terms of the averages, that have that have been scored, you know, the, the the average used to be around 35 runs per batter in test matches. Now it's around 22. It's not enough. You used to see totals above 500. We, we might see it in the fourth test. I, I wouldn't have thought so, though, with India needing this uh, last win to make the World Test Championship final, something that Australia's uh, now qualified for with that with that win. Yes, although Rohit Sharma has indicated a, a willingness to um to accommodate a different kind of pitch, which is, which is good. And um, he said, um, you know, as often we hear the pitch is the same for both teams, India need to perform on the pitch, Australia need to, you know, try and perform on the pitch. And um, he said um, he'd welcome a green deck, which would definitely be interesting and a far cry from what we've, uh, what we've seen. Yeah. I, I, I get, I get that it's good that he's willing to say that they might have a green deck and maybe they will, who knows, but I think the fact that he can say that's what we're going to order in is also not right. You know, Pat Cummins doesn't get to say that in Australia. You don't get James Anderson coming out and saying, oh, it's going to seem in England. Uh, like, we already know it's going to do that, obviously. But um, to, for the players to be ordering in the kind of pitches they want just doesn't seem fair. If you talk to curators, at least in Australia, um, and tell them what kind of pitch you want, they'll essentially tell you to fuck off. Like, that's the pitch is, is their job. They'll, they'll do what they want to do to essentially keep the grass alive because they need it to last 12 months in Australia, which is not something you need in, in India in the same way. Obviously, uh, that pitch was given a poor rating, which means it's, it uh, is deducted five demerit points. India has so many grounds around the country that it doesn't matter. Um, the, the way the rotation works with test matches is not going to play there within the next World Test Championship cycle anyway, so there's no chance that they'll be, uh, they'll be losing test matches. Uh, we saw at the end of uh, at lunch in day one, Rahul Dravid out in the middle with the pitch curator. Another odd odd move. Um, Rahul Dravid also, if we go back to 2021, he paid a pitch curator 35,000 uh, rupees after providing what, what he said was a sporting pitch, uh, one that they also won against New, Ze- uh, New Zealand. 
there's just some odd things going on there that just doesn't seem right, let alone like the pitch curator wearing BCCI uniform. Uh, it's all just a little bit too cosy together, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, obviously the the Dravid payment and that sort of thing is um, definitely something you don't want to be encouraging in terms of um, professional cricket and preparing pitches and that sort of thing. Um, I suppose, you know, you can't close a dialogue between um between a curator and you know members of the of the cricket team and that sort of thing because you know it does help to understand how they've prepared the pitch and why they've you know cut it the way they have and that sort of thing um so there needs to be some kind of um i suppose mediator and I, I guess perhaps the ICC needs to serve as that that sort of mediator. Yeah, as long as India has as much control in the ICC as they do, I don't think that's going to be uh, be the case. I'm not all for India having more control in the game. They they should do the biggest country, obviously. But stuff like this, and people will be asking why we're talking about the pitch this week. Well, when your team wins, you can talk about it a bit more than when they lose, right? Because it's not seen as complaining in the same way that it might have been in the last two weeks. Like Australia won, but it still wasn't a fair uh, a fair contest between bat and ball. The, the level of skill to score runs on that pitch was not what it needed to be. It was all luck, really. Like, you could be the best batter in the world, as, you know, Steve Smith and Vera Coley are, and you can't make runs on it because one will just shoot through uh, ankle height. One will go through, well, as we saw with that, it wasn't required in dismissal in the second innings. It went through to the keeper's head on the first ball of the day. That's That's day three, the start of it. That's not ideal. And if you're playing, I know it's different in India with uh, with spin bowlers bowling the majority, but if that was happening with pace bowlers, uh, I think the game would be called off. Um, just because the pitches are slower and it's a little bit less dangerous doesn't mean the pitches are allowed to be worse. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of why India is doing this, putting the, the politics hat on for a second. Um, so I think that these, these pitches and kind of Indian cricket in general is part of a bigger nationalist movement in India that we've seen, you know, obviously the fourth test coming up so at Modi Stadium, the only democratically elected uh, leader to have a stadium named after them, a little bit odd. Um, India essentially wants to be number one across everything, right? GDP, population, they've already hit number one GDP they're looking at, and sport's a big part of that. And obviously cricket being the number one sport and the sport they're really good at uh, is is the big one there. We see Obviously, that that mix of politics and sport. China's doing the same thing, except they do it with the Olympics because they've got more money to pump into more sports, essentially. Uh, and that obviously, the, those two countries are in a, a pretty big rivalry. So that's pretty much the reason behind it, I would have thought. You know, India really wanting to become number one. We're seeing the BCCI and the Indian government becoming more and more entrenched. Jace Shah in charge of the BCCI, the son of a senior minister. Um, it's all very cosy. As I said before, pitch curators and teams and then teams and government, it's all all nice and close together. Yeah, yeah. And you think, um, you know, when you think of professional sports and that sort of thing, you think it should probably be somewhat removed from um, politics. But yeah. cricket, for whatever reason, has always been pretty closely, closely uh, associated with politics, not just yeah. in India and Australia as well. And, you know, um, kind of across the world to cricketing history so that's kind of always there to stay um i guess it's just a matter of from our perspective hoping that it doesn't influence things to the extent that it that it spoils the quality of the cricket yeah and 
when you look at the pitch like the one we had in the third test, it kind of did spoil the quality of the cricket. Yeah, hopefully that changes a little bit. Yeah, obviously other countries, like when Australia was in charge of cricket, it was the same thing. And when England was in charge, it was the same thing again. It doesn't mean you have to go further now, though. Um, that's not what good global citizens do. I'm not saying Australia or England are any better. Don't get me wrong. Every country is uh, pretty bad at this kind of thing. And I think part of the reason that cricket's such a big part of that international uh, like politics space is because it's the only sport where I think the main format is international. So you'll have, you'll have international football, for instance, but that's, you know, you play friendlies and then a World Cup occasionally. Cricket is always international, even even rugby. Uh, it's it's domestic stuff first and then international second. I think cricket's uh, the big the big difference there. But let's go on to the actual game. That's where, where the interest is. So India batted first, bowled out for 109. Pretty average stuff. Matt Kuhneman, five for 16. What a good selection that is, bringing him in. Uh, definitely better than having Ashton Agar. Nathan Lyon, obviously, three wickets there. And then Osman Khawaja, 60 in the second innings. That's a, it was a very good knock from him. Um, that pitch obviously turning a long way, very calm, along with Pete Hanscom. I think they were the two standouts. Hanscom didn't make as many runs as uh, Labuschagne or Smith did, but to face 100 balls on that pitch when there was wickets falling around him was pretty good. And then Australia fell away pretty quickly, as you'd expect. You wouldn't think the tail was going to make too many runs on there. Uh, India come back around 163, but really, you know, 70 odd to chase for Australia. It would have taken a minor miracle for them not to get it. And then Travis Head played an absolute blinder after they changed the ball and almost got to 50 himself. So a pretty comprehensive victory, really. 11 wickets for Nathan Lyon in the match, 8 for 64 in the second innings. His second best figures in Test cricket. He's pretty good, really, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Lyon was kind of used sparingly in the first um, innings, but mm. I think when you saw his first first wicket, you're like, okay, he's on here <laughs> because of um, of the, the spinners we've taken around. He's the one who turns the most dramatically. Yeah. And on a pitch that was offering a lot of turn, that definitely came to the forefront in terms of um, what happened in the second innings. Um, Kuhneman played well. Kuhneman bowled stump to stump as you want your orthodox um, mm. bowler to do so. And um, he got natural variation off the pitch, off the cracks. So he he did well with that. And um, yeah, he just felt a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident in this in this test. And um, that translated really well in terms of what he was producing. And um, obviously Todd Murphy chipped in a bit. He's been really good throughout the series. And um, I'm hoping to see more of him, not just in the subcontinent. Yeah, I think we'll definitely, I think he'll definitely be the second spinner going around now. I think Kuhneman's kind of like Steve O'Keefe was, he'll be a, an Asian specialist. I don't see him having a massive impact in Australia, especially since he can't bat at all. Todd Murphy can at least bat a little bit uh, as Nathan Lyon can. If they're going to drop someone for the next test, though, I think it'll be Murphy, though, just to, if if it is a green teamer, as uh, Rohit suggested, Scott Boland probably comes in for Murphy. Um, and then they keep Kuhneman and Lyon going. Travis Head, very good at the top of the innings, nine in the first innings, but then, uh, you know, almost that 50 in the second one. A mistake not to play him in the first test, obviously. Uh, but I think importantly, a mistake they rectified. They acknowledged that that was a mistake and they fixed it. Something I think previous regimes might not have done for Australia. They might have, you know, stuck to their guns. We were always correct. We'll keep fighting on the way we we had to. I think having to, like being forced to make that change with Renshaw not being there anymore and David Warner also not being there has, has really helped, uh, you know, head coming out, going aggressively from the start, really important. It's just also a good long-term move because, you know, you and I have spoken for a while. We see Travis Head as a leader in the Australian team. Yeah. Um, He's, he's, 
you know, he's not old or anything like that as compared to, you know, some of the more senior players in the team, the Smiths, the Warners, the players like that. And um, he's someone who you want to build around and therefore you want in every every squad, every team. Yeah. Doesn't matter if he struggles in particular situations, you want him there for his leadership. And he's, he's not too bad in terms of um, part-time spin um, mm. and that might end up being influential in the fourth test. Um, if we do end up only taking two spinners and then two seamers. Um, so, you know, the way I see um, Travis Head and the Australian test team is as an option from opener to about five that you can kind of switch around and use to inject that pace because that's just his natural way of playing the game. Yeah. And he does it really well. He doesn't necessarily swing at balls that are, you know, ones that would be unwise to swing at. He, he he just knows when is a good time to go, and he plays really good shots. He has a good technique. And when he's playing confidently, as he was in that second innings, then he's very, very hard to stop. Yeah, I think he's definitely a confidence player. Uh, we've seen before, one, when he get, does get down, he can fish outside off stump. I think he's fixed a lot of those issues, and he's only got better. He will only get better 29. He's probably got what, two more tours of India after this to come. Uh, definitely someone they need to invest in, as you said. Can bat literally anywhere from one to five, bowls a little bit. Uh, potentially the next captain of this team as well, uh, depending on how long Pat Cummins decides to do the job. Plenty of upsides for Head. Um, going into the Ashes, though, it, David Warner might come back, might not come back. Some of the talk seems to be uh, plays World Test Championship, then that's it. Uh, what do you do with Travis Head then? Do you leave him as the opener or do you move him down to or back down to five where he's done so well over the last couple of summers? That's a good question. Um, he's shown the mentality and acumen to be able to play as an opener. Um, he's not necessarily proven in Australian conditions in red ball. Mm. So that's something that you may need to investigate. But it's probably worth it thinking about who's coming through. You know, I mean, we think about Hunt, who who, who is a very talented player but also completely unproven at the international stage mm -hmm. and um, a different sort of player to Warner, whereas head would kind of be a like for like change and it would, it would help quite a bit in terms of the transitional period for the Australian team. Um, but it's also ultimately what he wants. Does he yeah. want to be a five or does he want to be an opener? And um, I think, you know, the coach and the, and Pat Cummins and, you know, senior members of the team need to, take that into account and go, well, okay, if you're a five, we'll play you at five and we'll see, you know, what options we can do at opener if Warner chooses to retire. There. Um, any other changes you're looking for for this final test? looks to be some, not really much pressure from the Australian batters. Obviously no one else really in India, so they can't do much there. Uh, the only other change for India might be KS Barrett. He's, there's been some chat about maybe bringing Ishan Kishan in instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they might bring Shami back especially yeah. because it's um it's a must-win game in terms of the uh, World Test Championship. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Shemi just has that level more experience um, than Siraj does. So I think that might be um, a decision they go for. And um, I think ever since the beginning of the, of the series, fans have wanted to see Ishan Kishan play. Yeah. And... You know, now that they've lost a test, they have a reason to play him. So I'd be surprised if they continued with Barrett. And, um, but I think in terms of their batting lineup, 
um, beyond Wicked Keeper. They're going to try and stick with what they've got. They want to see how Gil and Rohit play together. They didn't really get a chance to see that. And um, yeah, they just um, they've been talking about the order and maybe bringing Rahul back and playing him in the top order rather than yeah. as an opener, and that's an option. But I th- I don't think that's an option they're going to take into the fourth test. I think that's something they'll maybe look at in terms of their next home home series. Yeah, I think uh, Barak. Yeah, it de- also depends on what the pitch is going to do. I think if it's another ranked turner like we've seen in the last three, you probably want your best keeper being Barrett. If it's a bit more bowler, fr- uh, a bit more batter friendly, then you'll probably get away with Ishan Kishan, who's more of a, I guess, a white ball gloveman. Uh, World Test Championship, though, so India need to win this to qualify automatically. If they do not win uh, a draw or a loss there, then Sri Lanka would need to win 2-0 against New Zealand in New Zealand to go to the World Test Championship final. So odds are that India make it. Uh, It would take something pretty special for Sri Lanka to, to beat New Zealand in New Zealand. Yep, but you know anything's possible for Sri Lanka when they're on where when they're on the top of their form, they can certainly do so. But New Zealand, being in the uh, the period of transition they are with Southie at at captain, mm. um, they're going to want to get at least a win out of that series, if not you know win the series, and um, that's going to be a very tall task for Sri Lanka. But it'll be very good cricket to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's in March in the Southern Hemisphere. Impossible to imagine. Imagine Australia actually having a test summer that last past the first week of January. Who would have thought we're going to go to India instead? That makes sense. Uh, so what do you think this final test looks like, apart from, well, a shitload of people going to be at the first well, first day, what is it, 120,000 going to pack into that place, uh, as well as Benjamin Modi and Anthony Albanese? Just on a side note, could you imagine an Anthony Albanese stadium? What would that look like? Anyway, uh, <laughs> what do you reckon this test is going to look like? Um, well, it's definitely going to be a spectacle in terms of, you know, that day one attendance and that sort of thing. And I think the batsmen in particular are going to be feeling a lot of pressure because they'll be hearing, you know, people talking about the pitch, people talking about the series and how it's been low scoring and stuff like that. And they're all going to feel, feel under pressure, regardless of if they are or not in terms of their position. So each batter is going to go out there and I wouldn't be surprised if they played conservatively except for ones who play naturally aggressively, you know, the the Sharmas, the heads, the players like that. But I think a lot of players are going to play conservatively. They're going to try and bat long, and they're going to try and make sure that the test goes at least four days, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And what's odd is maybe both teams will be playing for a draw. Yeah, I think we could definitely see that. I also don't think they're going to provide the same kind of pitch because they don't want the demerits on this stadium because – there will actually be tests at this stadium every year as long as Modi is in charge, you would have thought. Um, more Indian stuff. The Women's Premier League has also kicked off uh, this uh, this week. Um, some big scores to start off with. Uh, the, the boundaries are very small, which I'm not a big fan of. I think they should just have uh, you know, decent-sized boundaries. You don't have to rope them in too much. Uh, the first match, Mumbai Indians made 207 for five. A pretty remarkable kind of score. Hayley Matthews smashing the ball around. Harmanpreet Kaur, the star, obviously, 65 from 30 there. Uh, a massive win bowling out Gujarat for 64. The worst news, though, Beth Moody injury uh, in that match. She retired after just three balls faced. Uh, so the WIPL was over, essentially. If Beth Moody's not playing, what's the point of watching? 
There's a few other Australians in there, namely Ash Gardner is a pretty notable name. <laughs> and yeah, look, it is unfortunate about Mooney's injury. I remember remember watching it actually because I I watched that game and um yeah, seeing the way she went off, it was kind of like oh this this is maybe isn't ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that shouldn't take away from what was an incredible performance from Mumbai in terms of um both um quality at both ends of, of the game you know the batting and the and the bowling was really really good um Ishak in particular bowled really really well mm-hmm. and you know I think in terms of teams that you'd want to be good in the WPL Mumbai is probably one of them because it's a huge market yeah. and you know success brings fans and more fans that go to the WPL is um is better for the overall product and Mumbai obviously hosting this uh, inaugural tournament hosting every game amongst the three different stadiums there. Uh, the second game was the highest scoring one, though, 223 for two from Delhi. Uh, Shafali Verma with 84, Meg Lanning 72, Marazan Cap 39 off uh, 17 balls, three sixes in there. Uh, the, the smaller boundaries obviously helping with those big scores, but you've still got to hit them at the end of the day. It looked like both Lanning and Verma were on for hundreds there. It was a pretty remarkable performance and some some pretty bad bowling, really. Sophie Devine going for 20 from her over. Even Megan Shute, who's probably one of the most economical fast bowlers in the world, went for 11.25 and over. Only oh, only four dot balls in her four overs. Uh, not quite what you'd come to expect from her. No. Well, I think the thing about Shute is, A, she's not used to bowling in India. Yeah. So there's obviously going to be an adjustment period there. And I think you're seeing that with a lot of international bowlers there adjusting to Indian conditions because mm. they don't play there all that often. They, they will now, so now that the WPL is there. Um, but I think it does take a second to adjust um, your bowling, your action, your length and that sort of thing and shoots all about her length. So that's yeah. kind of, you know, a, a way to explain um, why she wasn't very economical. Mm. But, you know, forms temporary, class is permanent, we say it very often, and I have no doubt that Megan Shoot will end up taking some wickets and being very successful in the tournament. Um, but yeah, so far it's been bat dominant, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because, again, it, it appeals to the fans, it appeals to casual fans, young fans, and um, it'll it'll get it'll get people to remember the names of these players who are putting up those big scores, you know, the the Cores, the Vermas, the Lannings. I mean, obviously we're all familiar with those names, and, you know, if you're familiar with the women's game, they're all also very familiar names in terms of, you know, knowing who's influential on the international stage. But for a lot of people who this is their kind of first introduction into women's cricket, um, it's really, really good for them to understand who who the stars are and um, why they're must-see. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest change that uh, the women won't be used to is playing at night. Um, a lot of women's cricket, even like the WBBL, is played mostly during the day. Um, outside of kind of the finals, they were at night, but the, most of us during the day, even like 10 a.m. games and on occasion, even the women's 100, they were often playing before the men, which means you're playing earlier in the day. India, obviously, due plays a massive factor uh, in the, the men's IPL and it's going to do the same in, in the women's IPL. Bowling with essentially a, a cake of soap when that ball was wet is, uh, I'm sure, very difficult. So uh, that would explain, I guess, some of some of the big scores. Uh, Grace Harris did 59 off 26, just smashing the ball around, worth every cent for the UP Warriors uh, there. So they got a good win there. They chased, that, uh, chased down the total against Gujarat with one ball to spare, three-wicket win there. That's the game of the round so far. Uh, mm. We're four games into the tournament, clearly the best one. 
Yep, yep, that was the closest one, and um, it was for a reason. Both very good teams. And, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting going forward seeing uh, who ends up making the finals because, yeah. you know, I think each team has a level of talent that they 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 can be in the conversation. Um, it's just a matter of which team gels best together. Absolutely. And then the most recent game uh, was real club cricket areas from Hayley Matthews who opened the batting and the bowling, took three wickets with the ball, and then 77 from 38 uh, with uh, with the bat. So Mumbai getting over the top of RCB in RCB's first game. Um, not much to say about that, really. Mumbai is just a really good side. Hayley Matthews up the top is smashing them. Uh, and that's Brun at three. That's a really impressive side. You know, they didn't even need Harmon for a quarter four. And then Amelia Kerr can also hit them down uh, down the order a little bit. Uh, the, the best players are clearly shining in this tournament. It's pretty it's pretty clear. If, if you're, like, in those top five or six players in the world, you're hitting runs and you're taking wickets pretty consistently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has been one heck of a tournament so far. It's been two games for Haley Matthews, um, early favourite for player of the tournament. Um, mm. There's been some great performances, but I still feel like nobody's close just in terms of what she's already accomplished. Yeah. Um, and if she keeps performing with the ball as well as she's been performing with the bat, then she's kind of the most menacing two-way threat um, mm. in all of the WPL. So, um, you know, it's great to see her doing well. And um, it's obviously a huge weapon for Mumbai. And, um, yeah, I think in terms of um, scheduling, it's not been too bad. Um, I don't think it's been too, like, you know, stepping on each other's toes or anything like that. And I don't think it's been really outshined by any other product around, which is often the problem with some True. women's cricket tournaments. Yeah. And um, I think it's uh, benefited enormously well from that. Yeah. Uh, having a window to essentially plan, uh, plan their own from the start is obviously a massive advantage. Something that the WBBL uh, does not have. Uh, the table currently has Mumbai right at the top, obviously two wins from their two games, a net run rate of over five. So you would think with each team only playing five games, they're probably going to make the finals. Good you're at down the bottom. We've also lost two. Not impossible to make the finals, but it's going to be a pretty difficult climb from down the bottom there. All the other teams played one or two games as well. Uh, the season's only 20 matches long, uh, you know, five teams, uh, four, five teams, five games each, all that kind of thing. Not really enough games compared to what the WBBO is, what, 60 games, something like that. Uh, it's a long season. And then just two finals, uh, the semifinals and then the final. It's uh, It's just not long enough, is it? You know they're putting a bunch of money into the tournament, and then there's not enough cricket to to provide. No, it's not long enough, but I think that's intentional. Mm. They're using it as a preview, as a yeah. preview for what the WPL can and will be. Yeah. There was still hesitation in terms of going ahead with the tournament. You know, we've been wanting this tournament for four or five years now. Yeah. Um, it's only happened this year. And the reason is um, just reluctance in terms of um, what interest they draw and that sort of thing. Um, so far, it's been a success. It's drawn great interest domestically and internationally. And, you know, the WPL are going to look at that, going to be like, great, that's good. We can expand. We can maybe add a couple more teams and have a longer season and people will still invest, enjoy, and um, it'll help continue to develop the women's game. Now, I do feel the season's too short, even as a preview season. It could have done with 
maybe a couple more fixtures um just because that would add more intrigue in terms of what happened on the table because like you said you know we're four games into the tournament and it looks like Mumbai's already in the finals, right? If it was a bit longer, then, you know, anything could happen. But right now it doesn't feel like anything could happen because it's too short. So um, there's lessons to be learned and um, I'm hoping those lessons are learned quickly and uh, applied, the lessons are applied in the uh, in the next season. Yeah, absolutely. I think success for the tournament, as, as you've just highlighted there, is making sure there's a next season. That's number one most important, doing enough to make sure that the, the money's coming in to provide uh, another season of cricket and then to expand. That's that's the big thing, right? They want to expand this into having the same amount of teams as the IPL. Ideally, having those teams aligned with the IPL would be good as well. Um, and then I don't know if they have to run it concurrently with the IPL. I don't see them having any other choice going forward. Just with, you know, the men's tournament is only going to get longer. It's going to stretch both uh, earlier in the year and later in the year. I don't know where they could move the women's tournament outside of that period and then not have it in monsoon season. So I think they're probably going to have to play it concurrently, which could mean double headers. It could also mean they're just moving the Women's Premier League around to different cities in India each year. So Mumbai hosts this one, then maybe Delhi hosts the next one. Uh, that could be another option. I'm not sure the best way of doing that. But there's just so much cricket in the schedule now that there's not enough time in the year to have you know scheduled windows for each tournament. And I think what's going to have to change as well with fans is you're going to have to go from more of following cricket to following uh, following a team, right? Like if you're an American baseball fan, as we mentioned earlier in the episode there, uh, you can't follow every game of the Major League Baseball. Like there's 168 games per team per season and then 30, uh, 30 teams. It's impossible to follow every game, right? You have to be following certain teams and certain competitions and that's just the way it's going to have to work going forward. You can't be trying to follow England playing in New Zealand one week and then literally the next day, England playing in Bangladesh in an ODI series and Harry Brook jetting off to Florida to play baseball, right? You can't be following all of that at the same time. You just don't have enough um, that's enough space in your brain, let alone time in the day to do all of that. So uh, there's going to have to be some change with the fans. Uh, you already mentioned Hayley Matthews, a player of the tournament. That's your pick. What do you reckon for uh, most runs and leading we can tell you? Um, that's a good question. I think Verma's a good chance for most runs. Yeah. Um, seeing the form she was in in her first game. And, um, you know, in terms of high-profile Indian players, she's definitely one of the ones you'd identify up there with Kaur and Vastrika and players like that. And um, she's going to prove why she's, um, you know, she went for all that money and why she's so so important to the yeah. Indian cricket landscape. So I th- I'd say she's my favourite in terms of um, the highest run taker. Um, in terms of wickets... Um, that's definitely harder to say, especially considering how these first few games have gone, because there haven't been that many wickets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think an early favourite's Ishak. Yep. Obviously, she had a very good um, first game, got that fourther. Mm-hmm. And um, she looks like she understands Indian conditions a lot better yeah. than any any other bowler in the tournament, not just internationally, not just, you know, in terms of players who are maybe new to the scene or that sort of thing. Experienced Indian players, she's the one who understands it the most and you can see it the way she bowls. Yeah, I think those are both very good calls. Obviously, Tara Norris and Kim Garth also took five-wicket balls in their first matches. Tara Norris from the US, which is good to see. One of the few associate players that actually got a gig. Um, Pop's quiz question here. There's an Australian sitting ninth on the runs uh, tally at the moment. Have a guess who it is. An Australian? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I have no idea. Um, 
Gosh, ninth on the runs tally. It's been running under the radar, obviously. Has played two games. Played two games. Plays for RCB. Okay. Um, oh, no, nah, I can't remember. I'm sorry. You're going to need to tell me. <laughs> so Elise Perry is the other Australian playing at RCB. She's sitting 12th on this uh, 13th on the list, sorry. Uh, at number nine, though, Megan Shoot, Australia's number 11. No scored, way. It's scored 50 runs in two innings <laughs> at a strike rate of 151. Um, so there's that. Uh, yeah, I agree with you in terms of... Um, Run to run scorers and we get uh, we get takers. I don't think anything's going to change too much there. Uh, some other women's cricket news: the women's PSL exhibition matches have also been announced. Uh, they were meant to have a full tournament starting this year, kind of like India, a little bit slow, dragging their feet on this one. Uh, essentially, the teams are the players that didn't get to play in the IPL. That's that's what's happened here. Laura Wolvart's going. Uh, is there any Australians there? I don't think so. Right? Um, oh no, Tess Flintoff is the other. Is the only Australian going? Hit a 16 ball 50 in the WBBL. A very good player like uh, Laura Delaney from Ireland's there, Lauren Winfield Hill, English, Danny Wyatt, but it's Leah Tahuhu from New Zealand. And then obviously all the Pakistan players who are obviously really good as well. Uh, Not much to say about this. There's three games. They're probably getting a little bit of money from it, probably not a lot. Uh, Pakistan might have just left this a little bit too late, I think. Yeah, maybe. I think. they were perhaps caught off guard, not only by the WPL because it all happened really quickly, mm-hmm. um, but also, but also how how much money was thrown into it, mm-hmm. um, which will definitely impact their allure in terms of international players, um, which is unfortunate because you know you want to see that international league succeed as well, and you want to see those international players you know get paid for what they're doing because they're yeah. they're the same quality some of them may even be better than some of the players who were selected in the in the wpl but for whatever reason they weren't picked up and um they're playing over there and they're probably not making anywhere near as much so it's just it's a difficult situation for them to be in but having a few preview games is good and again hopefully there's a good response to it and then that'll lead for for scope for growth and scope for uh development of that league to the extent that they can they can actually maybe draw some you know major international players the way the WPL has already. Probably the ideal solution would be to let the Pakistan players play in India. That that might fix the issue. You'd be able to explain the competition and have all of the best players in the world playing. Um, but that's not going to happen. Uh, we'll move on to six or out. I'll kick things off with the obvious question everyone's been asking. Steve Smith did a good job as captain against India. Uh, as Pat Cummins is away for the fourth one as well, should he stay on for the role into the Ashes? Um, no, I don't think so because Pat Cummins will be playing in the Ashes, and Pat Cummins is the captain. Yeah, um, it's pretty pretty simple answer there. Um, I could dive deeper into it just in terms of what Smith represents in terms of yeah. the scandal, and I know he wasn't directly involved, and I know he showed the most remorse of everyone involved. But it's still something that happened, and it's still something that affects reputation. So I don't see him captaining the Ashes if Cummins is available. If Cummins is unavailable, then yeah, he definitely will. But, you know, it's the Ashes. Hopefully Cummins' personal situation will have resolved by then. Mm. And, um, you know, he'll be wanting to put on a great performance, and he'll be, you know, really proud to be captaining the Ashes once again. 
Yeah, a lot of the people that have been calling for Steve Smith to be captain this week seem to have forgotten how it ended last time. Um, I think they moved on for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a completely justified reason. Mm. But, you know, the the other thing is Smith, Smith still feels like a reluctant captain, and he's captained quite a few tests since, yeah. you know, becoming vice-captain. Um so I think it's a difficult situation for him as well and something that some people don't really consider. Yeah, anyone that's, like, done any kind of captaincy knows there's two parts of that job for cricket, one of them on-field and then one not on-field. Uh, Steve Smith is not a good off-field captain. That's not what he's good at, like, the, the man management side of it, talking to the media, that's not his That's not his gig. So uh, Pat Cummins is in the right role there. Um, at least in my view. But anyways, my first question is... Um, You've spoken about, you know, performances in the WPL, stand-up performances from international players, Kim Garth in particular. Um, who do you see as being the most successful international player? And I'm going to exclude Hayley Matthews in this conversation. Uh, I think there's still time for Ash Gardner to get it right. Only played a couple of games at this point. Hasn't quite done the job. Um, but I think she'll still, still be able to get it right. Meg Lanning's obviously done very well in her first game. Uh, there's plenty of quality there. Amelia Kerr is an interesting one, though. Obviously, bowls spin and, and does bat very well. I think she's one to look out for. But, yeah, Hayley Matthews is, is really head and shoulders above everyone at the moment. And being the only West Indian in the tournament now is really flying the flag for, for Caribbean cricket. Ash Gardner was the highest paid player at the auction. Uh, but is she the best? Like, Does an auction system necessarily mean the best players are getting the most money? It doesn't necessarily, but it's about what it represents. And I think at the time of the auction, Ash Gardner was the best cricket player in the world. So yeah. I think it makes sense. Um, I also think in terms of potential impact, as far as international players can go, um, she's probably the highest potential. And you've already identified this this um, segment. She could still come good. And, you know, even an off-season for Ash Gardner would still see in five games six mm. wickets and over 100 runs. That's still not bad. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just players like Gardner and, you know, a lot of the high-level Australian players, you get so used to such a high standard that when they right. don't produce to it, you're like, oh, what's wrong with them? Oh, they're not so good anymore. We asked the same thing about Beth Mooney <laughs> in the WBBL, and then, you know, she came good as well. What's your ideal Indian batting lineup? Like, not from an Australian perspective, but like trying to put forward the best batting lineup for India against Australia in the fourth test. Who are you selecting and why? Uh, I think they've pretty much nailed it at this point. Um, the Gill and Rahul situation is an interesting one. Gill, obviously, the much higher upside, but yet to really prove himself in at test level. But then again, Kyle Rahul has not made a run in well, what seems like years, at least for India. Uh, the keeper, probably, you'd be changing. If you wanted to score the most runs, you'd probably bring, be bringing Ishan Kishan in. Uh, a slow start for KS Barat. His, his first-class numbers are good, but obviously Ishan Kishan, one of the best white ball players in the world, and could possibly, like, he would. he's essentially playing a Travis Head role, right? He'd be able to go out there and hit runs quickly. Even Umesh Yadav batting at 11 did that, right? Like, he, he hit a couple of sixes got India from 90 to 107 and kept them in the game a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's probably all you'd, you'd do, K.O. Rahul up the top and then Ishan Kishan at, at seven. 
But the longer term play is obviously having Gill up the top because he's going to play the next decade and he's going to be one of the best in the world. All right. If you were to draft a world 11 for test cricket, men's test cricket, uh, which bowler, batter and keeper are you taking first? Okay. Okay. That's a good question. Bowler, batter and keeper. Oh, okay. Um, Is Blundell currently keeping for New Zealand? Yeah. Yep. I'd take Tom Blundell. Yeah. Um, I think he has a really good impact. Um, I think he's a good keeper. I think he's a remarkably calm wicket keeper, mm. which is a weird thing to say. Um, you know, you, we speak about Carey, and you know, Carey is really good and a good leader and that sort of thing. But I think Blundell is doing what we want Kerry to be doing. Yeah. Um, so I take him as wicket keeper. Um, in terms of bowler, I probably have to take Mitchell Stark mm. because he's the fastest and most accurate fast bowler, like very fast bowler um, across the whole the whole test thing. And um, I think if it's seeming at all, there's something he can do with it. Mm. So that's who I'm picking there. And then batting-wise, batting's difficult because there's been so many different players who've been, like, really up and down, you know. Mm -hmm. At one point, I'd have said, you know, Coley, no question, but now I'm not so sure. Um, At one point, I'd have also said Steve Smith, so no question. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not so sure. So who do I take at this point? Um, It's got to be Harry Brook, doesn't it? Yeah. He's got the best. He's got the best form. He's he's been incredible across all his formats, not just test cricket. Um, He's looked really confident, really comfortable and unbeatable in terms of, you know, if you're a bowler coming into bowl to Harry Brook, you're dreading it because you're like, oh, no, my numbers. And um, I think he he will have the most profound impact um, on a world test 11. So um, those are the three I'd go with. Yeah, the the only time Brook failed was when he didn't face a ball. So uh, he's, he's doing all right. <laughs> all right. That was a good question. All right. So um, my last question is... The World Test Championship is something that you know it, it's to it's to culminate the the Test season, mm. and it's to um to you know represent who who's done the best throughout the Test season and that sort of thing. If you could, would you make it a fourteen thing? For like a round robin final. Yep. Uh no, but I'd have the tournament make a bit more sense. Every team would have to play each other both home and away within a season. Well, not quite a season, is it? It's within a within the tournament before getting to the final. Because currently what Australia's played, they have Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, sorry, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and India away, uh, and then had the West Indies, South Africa, and uh, England at home. They won those home ones pretty convincingly. They've done a ride overseas, but having all three overseas tours being Asia is not quite like it just proves you're the best team that's played away in Asia that year, right? You could get like the luck of the draw. You could easily have, um, let's say Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and the West Indies could be your away tours in that, in that uh, schedule. And then you're probably going to win most of those matches. Right. So the way that it's currently done doesn't make sense with three series home and three series away. It's just not enough trigger. And also they're not being, uh, you know, like there being one or two test match series in there doesn't make any sense either. And then there being five test match series doesn't make sense. So you essentially you have to equal out the whole schedule 
uh, have three test series. That's the only thing that counts for points. You can play extras if you want and then have everyone play everyone. Um, it might not be possible currently with, what is there, 10 or 11, I think it's 10 teams in that, with Ireland and Afghanistan also there. So you've probably got to have two divisions maybe of of six teams or two divisions of seven teams and have a couple more teams play uh, test cricket. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of to say about that tournament. Australia obviously wants to win it, but it's a bit of a farce, really. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Um, let's move on to some other international cricket. We're not going to take too long on this stuff. Bangladesh and England. Uh, obviously, England hungover from uh, the wins in New Zealand, or what was almost a win with that uh, with that loss by just the one run. England win the first two of them. Bangladesh won uh, won yesterday. Um, I don't think it really tells us anything, right? England's still the best white ball team in the world. They're going to be the best white ball team forever. They're missing a bunch of players, Harry Brook included. Um, so the fact that he's he's not there makes it a little bit more harder to read which of these teams is actually good. No, but Bangladesh in terms of their... They've picked it up in terms of their white ball form. And, um, you know, taking games in these series is still encouraging, especially considering how far behind they were from, you know, England just a year ago. You know, they've already come quite a long way. And... um, they're investing more in white ball. You know, the Bangladeshi um, league is growing. Mm. Um, more Bangladeshi players are playing a little bit more international cricket. And um, it's only going to grow from there. So I think overall the series has been good. And, um, you know, before every match, you could see it going either way. And that's exactly what you want. Yeah, Bangladesh obviously... Uh, have the advantage playing at home with all that all that spin. But the, the people that uh, are scoring runs are the ones you want to be scoring runs if you're from Bangladesh. Uh, when they played in, Indi- uh, played in India, it was Mehdi Hassan who was hitting runs from number eight, which is good. Like, it'll get you wins occasionally, but it's not consistency that you need to be winning uh, long stretches of games, series, tournaments, that kind of thing. So Shakib Al-Hassan with a half-century, Mushfiga Rahim with another half-century, and Shantos hit two in the series. That's what you want to see, the three, fours, and fives hitting uh, hitting runs and then your bowlers taking the wickets. Shakib Al-Hassan with four wickets yesterday to beat England. Uh, a very good performance there. Um, and then over in South Africa, another Southern Hemisphere team also playing into March. Hmm, seems a little bit odd. Why can't Australia do that? Uh, they beat the West Indies in a pretty evenly contested game, uh, the first of Temba Babuma being... Uh, being captain in Test cricket, he did not do well. He made a pair, but the rest of the team did pretty well. Aidan Markram, who was named T20 captain, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, hit a century. He's back opening up, which is good to see. Uh, they've got Peterson in there as well, Keegan Peterson. He's batting at five. They're just trying to get him back in. They also dropped their keeper, which didn't make any sense. Uh, Varian was the only one that looked like making any runs in Australia, yet they decided, no, he can go and keep the rest of his. Uh, Alzari Joseph with five wickets. Pace obviously helps South Africa. Yorkia also doing very well with five wickets. Uh, the West Indian batters, they're letting them down once again. Raymond Reef are the only one to get past 50. So overall, South Africa pretty good home. The West Indies not so good. There's not too big of a gap between these teams, as we saw. They both got smashed by Australia over the summer. Uh, and I think the West Indies will do pretty well in that, in that second test. I think they've acclimatised now, spent some time in the country, and with Yorkia out injured, I think will be uh, a little bit closer. As we'd already identified, Joseph is 
the shining light of that West Indies team. Yeah. And as long as Joseph performs, then they have a chance. Um, that's that's the impact he has, and that's like you said, the teams are close enough in terms of quality that that could that could be the difference maker. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference maker in terms of why South Africa won was because of Nortia, not just because of his numbers, but the psychological impact you have when you're facing Nortia is pretty profound. He doesn't have that long of a run up. And then he yeets it at you at 150 kilometers an hour. It's such a it's such a like casual action, and then it's just upon you. Mm. And you know, having to face that at the other end, you don't want to end up on strike, right? And mm. then that that disrupts your flow in terms of batting in a partnership. That disrupts your technique in terms of how you're looking to construct your innings, and um, that's huge. And that'll mm. be quite missed in terms of um the next test if um well since Nortia is not going to be able to play yeah I think these teams are pretty close now but I feel like South Africa is not that far away from going to the next level with Australia India and England uh if Markram can score some runs at the top they need someone in the middle order who can also do that I thought it was very in before apparently that's not the case they don't want him they've gone with Henrik Klaassen they could honestly probably play both of them uh they're both good enough as batters to do that uh but their bowlers are really, really shine well. Like Rabada is probably one, probably the best bowler in the world. Uh, Nokia is super quick, and then Jansen, who's I don't know, what do you what do you say? He's a literal freak, right? He's like nine foot tall, bowls weird left arm stuff. Also bats at number seven, yeah. uh, and he's got a twin brother that does like the exact same thing, playing in the IPL. But faster, but fast. <laughs> like I don't know what's going on in that family, but they probably need to have more children as soon as they can and just play eleven <laughs> of them. Because uh, they're literal of freaks. So I, I don't think South Africa's too far away. It's just about shoring up their batting. They've still got Dean Elgar at the top. I'm not sure how much longer that experiment's going to last. Uh, I think he's probably on the way out. But Markham scoring runs, century in the first one, almost 50 in the next next innings. Uh, it was good to see. Uh, domestic cricket, uh, Will Pukowski, he is back playing cricket. He's playing for, the, uh, for Victoria's second 11 team. They started today after... Uh, a weird one, uh, their bags got lost, so they couldn't play the first day. So they've changed that four-day game into a three-day game, bowling 116 overs in the day. A bit of a slog, but that's the uh, – well, that's what happens when you play second 11 cricket. You don't quite get the, the perks of private planes and all of that when you do play for Australia. No, no. Um, second 11 has come a long way in terms of the quality of cricket and that sort of thing here. Yeah. In fact, Bukowski's on that team. Yeah. Um, kind of just shows you all you need to know in terms of, you know, what they're producing on the field. But yeah, um, 116 overs in a day is a lot. But there's so many people on those teams that are wanting to prove themselves, wanting to make first grade and that sort of thing. So they'd more than happily do 130 overs in a day <laughs> um, because, you know, they're so close they can taste it. Um, encouraging to see Prokofsky's playing again. Um, hopefully everything works out okay you know we've we've had the sentiment for a long time about Wolbukowski we just want him to be okay and live well so hopefully you know he loves cricket and cricket is you know going to be a part of that but we just need to make sure he's he's safe and he's well and everything's going okay yes uh the first day of that match is completed uh they didn't get through 116 overs believe it or not they just got through 76.5 uh, I'm sure with some rain or bad light or something being in Tasmania this time of year. Uh, Charlie Wakim, 161. So pretty good start for him with the bat. 
Uh, Goffs are young, should we be batting tomorrow? Uh, as mentioned last week, WA and South Australia playing each other in the one-day cup final. That is tomorrow, I believe, is at 10.30 WA time. So if you're listening in WA, make sure you go because I think tickets are like 10 bucks. Um, you're going to get much better value on the Wacker for 10 bucks than that. Yeah, very good value. And um, what's going to be a really good game, as we um we previewed last week, it's um those two teams. Well, South Australia has been a bit of a surprise. Um, WA always good, and um, yeah, it's going to be going to be really good, a really good final. Uh, yeah, I'd expect WA to win, but you never know. Something uh, crazy could happen. In the Sheffield Shield over the week, Victoria beat New South Wales by ten wickets. Uh, Matt Short with another century, really knocking on the door for international selection. Probably in all three formats. Um, I, I think unlucky not to be selected in that ODI squad to go to India. Um, you know, he makes runs for fun, bowls spin as well. I don't know what else you really want at the top of the order than that. Um, in the other games, South Australia bowled out for 111 in the third innings of their game, losing to Queensland and essentially uh, missing out on any chance of the Shield final because of that. We'll get to the table in a second. And then WA beat Tassie by nine wickets. Mitch Marsh with 100 upon his return. Uh, a good way to clinch the final spot, the top spot on the table before the finals. Yep, yep. Um, nothing majorly surprising there, really, just in terms of how the Sheffield Shield season has played out. Um, good to see Marsh performing, as you said. Good to see Short performing. Um, when you, From the perspective of those guys, you just need to keep playing well that you can't be ignored for much longer. Yeah, that's right. Just keep knocking on the door. Someone will answer eventually. Uh, let's have a look at the table. WA, obviously, on top there on 50-ish points. Six wins from their nine games. Just the one loss. Uh, the only other two teams in contention for the fi- second final spot is Queensland and Victoria. Uh, South Australia missing out there. Tasmania won the two games for the year. New South Wales still yet to win one. Uh, if they lose the last game against South Australia... That'll be the first winless season since 1938-39 for New South Wales. So not quite unprecedented, but uh, not ideal either. And an interesting one because that was also when Bradman was playing for New South Wales. So I don't know what was going on there. I guess he just didn't play any of the games that season because I don't see how they lose without him. Yeah. Well, I guess he wasn't playing for New South Wales and that was the problem. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's (laughs) I guess that's right. Uh, so in the final round, that starts next week. Uh, WA is also going to be missing a bunch of their players, obviously, because they all get selected for white ball cricket, which will make things interesting for the final. Uh, Tasmania and Queensland have each other in Hobart, which will make things a little bit tougher for Queensland, uh, although I think Michael Nisa will do pretty well on those pitches. Uh, South Australia, New South Wales, that's a, well, nothing's going to be really riding on that game, but uh, it'll be a good one to watch, see if New South Wales can finally get a win. And then Victoria was going to need to beat WA over in WA to make sure they clinch that final spot. So uh, they'll have to do it two weeks in a row if they want to keep the shift or take the Sheffield Shield, just one if they want to make the final. A pretty tough gig for Victoria. Looking at that, I would expect Queensland to make the final more than Victoria at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. But um, if Victoria do manage to to win that game, then they have every chance of... Um taking the shield as you said mm-hmm. um momentum's a funny thing and um yeah. if you take a win over the team you're about to play that has a massive mental effect and um that final i think regardless of what the final is if it's queensland or victoria um it's going to be going to be really really good 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like all these games obviously get played at the same time. So it's going to make it really interesting going into that last day with what teams need to do what going into the last innings, who needs to win, who needs to draw, all that kind of stuff. Um, Victoria have the advantage of the game starting three hours later in Perth than it does in the East Coast. So they'll know what they need to do before uh, Queensland do uh, over there. Um, To finish things up, we've got Shane Warne's death. So that's just... The one-year anniversary of that just passed, uh, I think it was two or three days ago at this point. Um, I was a little bit jolted the other day. I was watching the final day of the Test match, and then you hear Shane Warne's voice pop up on Fox Cricket, and I thought that was uh, it was odd. It was a, a really jolting moment. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's still surreal. It's 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 crazy that that it was a year ago as well because it it mm. just it still feels so recent. Yeah. And you know, we we had those those show of respects in the home season of for Shane Warne and for Andrew Simons as well, who we sadly also lost last year. Mm. And um, yeah, it just it it's still there's still such a hole in the Australian cricketing community um, without Shane Warne and without Andrew Simons. And you know, as as we've said before, regardless of your opinion of 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 either of them, they were massively influential. And um, they were gone too soon. Absolutely, I'm of an age where you didn't didn't really get. To, I'm sure they're the same. Didn't really get to see Shane Warne playing for Australia that much, right? Like I was about nine when he retired from playing for Australia, so I really saw him playing IPL and then, well, kind of the Big Bash, right? That was a bit of a joke towards the end there, but more of Shane Warne has been in the commentary box for my life at least. And yeah, it's been odd not not hearing him. Firstly, in England, when he wasn't there for their winter over uh, their summer. And then over this summer, it's been it's been odd as well. And then to hear it pop up was uh, a shock, that's for sure. But that's where we're going to wrap things up for the week. Callum, where can people find you on social media? Yep, I'm on Twitter at Callum underscore Logie. Perfect. At Rory underscore Dennis for me. Make sure you're following the show at the Top Edge Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, follow Edge of the Crowd everywhere, uh, TikTok in particular for more of our stuff, uh, as well as Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And what else do you want? Do you want an email? Uh, edge of the crowd at gmail.com. There you go. There's one, one of those for you. Uh, leave a rating and review of the show on your chosen podcast platform. Subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Leave a comment, all that stuff. If you have ideas for content, put those down there as well, and we'll see what we can do. But that's where we're going to leave it for the week uh, and we'll call stumps.